You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good to see you, Northway Church. Y'all doing all right this week? Come on. So good to be back with y'all. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. If I hadn't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors at Northway, and so thankful you're with us this post-Thanksgiving weekend, this launch into Advent, the season of Advent. Advent is here. Uh, it's, it's historically a season where we find ourselves standing in the midst of an incredible tension, right in the middle of an already and not yet. And uh, I'm so thankful to launch this series on Advent with you here. Took the whole last week off it was refreshing, it was good, it was needed, but I, I missed this body, and I'm so grateful to be back in this place with these people and, uh, and, and begin Advent together. And I know there's some that are in here, maybe you're a guest, maybe it's your kind of first uh, introduction to the church, and you hear a term like Advent, and you, what is that? There are others who've been with us here and even in more liturgical backgrounds prior to Northway, and you know exactly what Advent is, but for us, it's a season of remembrance. It's a season of renewal. It's a season of anticipation, of waiting and longing and hopes that are still fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled. And in fact, the word Advent is a Latin term that we get that we translate from it arrival or coming. And in that, this becomes a season in which the church of Jesus Christ in these weeks following Thanksgiving, leading up to Christmas, and really even beyond Christmas, what Advent becomes for us is an opportunity for us to look, to look backward, to look at the first Advent of Jesus, the first coming, the first arrival of Jesus when he came incarnate into this world in that manger in Bethlehem and ultimately uh, walked this earth and culminated in the death and the resurrection from the grave of Jesus, where he conquered uh, the power of sin in our lives, and he conquered Satan and the penalty of sin that reigned over us as rebels of God. And we look back on that first advent, and we remember being fueled with gratitude of the God who came to save us, who did not leave us idle. And yet this season isn't just about looking back. It, we take that gratitude and it fuels us as we look ahead into a season that we're still waiting for, a, a time that God has promised will once again, Jesus will advent with us again. He will come, he will arrive once more in a second advent where he won't just deal with the penalty and the power of sin, but he'll take away the very presence of sin. Those who long for justice, that day is coming when the eastern sky will split and Jesus will descend and he will wipe away every injustice that has ever been committed. He will bring about the consummation and the fullness of his kingdom that has been promised to us. And that is the day of hope that we long for, that we are still waiting for. And so in this season of Advent, we are reminding ourselves of our location in the story of what God has been and is still doing in the world around us throughout human history. It's a season to remind us of how our lives are meant to orient around the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing lesser. And yet it's also a season by which we can 
teach ourselves and teach our hearts what it means to wait, what it means to trust in this tension of the already that is Christmas and the not yet that is the fullness of his kingdom still to come. You know, over the years, the church has leveraged this season in a number of ways to to teach those things to our heart. Uh, Some of you have used the Village Church's Advent Guide for years, and you're launched into it maybe even today. Others, uh, maybe you've you've used the the candles, the Advent candles, and usually the, the four Sundays here leading up to Christmas. Each of those candles represent a different theme. Um, even the Bible Project, if you're familiar with them, uh, does an in-depth study on these four different themes. And we're going to play off that here this, this Advent season and look at those four themes, the themes of hope, of peace, of joy, and of love. These four key themes that are rooted in the Old Testament in the shadows of promise, and yet how those four themes of hope, peace, of joy and of love are fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. And, um, and so we're going to launch into this with starting with the theme of hope this week, of hope. Generally defined when we talk about hope in our nomenclature, in our culture, hope can generally be defined as that feeling of anticipation for a future something that is better than what is present. This anticipation, this this longing for something still to come that is not currently here yet, something to be gained that we do not currently possess is how we would typically define hope. We're hoping for something. Hope is vital for human existence. We all need some sort of hope that keeps us propelling forward in our, even in our worst days of suffering. And when it comes to hope, there's usually two frameworks, though, that one can hope in. There is a worldly hope, and as we're going to also see this week, there is a biblical hope. There is a worldly hope, and this is a common hope that's around us all the time. In fact, I would argue we experience a kind of worldly hope almost every single day. There is something that we are hoping for. Maybe it's I'm hoping that that dude would finally get down and propose this Christmas and quit delaying. We're hoping for that. Maybe it's, I hope that maybe at the turn of the year, they'll finally recognize the work that I've been doing in this company and I'll get that promotion that they have been hinting at but have yet to deliver. I'm hoping that's gonna happen this year. I'm hoping for that Christmas bonus or I'm hoping that they'll fire Jason Garrett or I'm hoping they won't fire Jason Garrett. Y'all just have at it, all right? Either way, there are hopes that are out there that we hope in every single day. We're about to enter into a storm of a political season, and you're going to see hope being slung around all over the place of who one hopes will win the next presidential election. And we root daily into these types of worldly hopes. But here's the deal. All those hopes have one thing in common when it comes to worldly hope. They are all based upon probabilities, but not a promise. That's the difference, the main difference we're going to see with worldly hope. Worldly hope is rooted in probabilities, in possibilities, but not in promise. They are rooted in circumstances, 
but not certainties. They are rooted in guesses, but not guarantees. They are rooted in maybes, but never a must. At some point, all of our worldly hopes will ultimately disappoint us. At some point, sooner or later, because all worldly hopes are rooted in human systems that are fallible and have the potential of letting us down. They offer great potential in terms of deliverance, but yet they cannot deliver. Uh, I remember uh, having this kind of worldly hope, even from a young age, I took of all the classes that I got excited about uh, in my younger years, history was one that I did not like early on, but then grew on me over time. Maybe some of y'all are that way. And Texas history was also big for me. Um, I remember in seventh grade studying Texas history and recreating the Alamo and having to think through all the events that led up to the Alamo. And then I remember as I moved into my parenting years, I was excited to teach my kids, especially when we were living in California because they don't teach Texas history out there. And that bothered me. Didn't know why they didn't do that. Taught California history, but uh, not Texas history. So we took a trip when we came back to visit Texas. And I was all excited about this trip to take my girls along with my wife and us to go down and visit all the landmarks and monuments of Texas history. Like we're going to the, we're going to San Antonio. We're going to see the Alamo heading over to San Jacinto where the whole thing was won. And I remember we were going to go down to Gonzales, Texas, because that's where the famous cannon is that is known for the come and take it flag. And I have always been a big come and take it. I own a come and take it flag. I've got come and take it stickers around the house, like Easter eggs just hidden. There's something very prideful that is rooted in that come and take it in Texas. Um, and I'll tell you, by the way, just side note, uh, if you ever get the chance uh, to see the, the HBO series, uh, Texas Rising, I finally figured out where all the Texas pride comes from. It's in that episode. It starts on the day following the Alamo falling and then what led to San Jacinto and the pride that's fueled in Texas that is still around today that I still need to repent from. It's still there and all of us, uh, but nonetheless, come and take it. Anybody ever been to Gonzales, Texas? You've been to see the cannon. I know the Smiths did recently. Yeah. You want to talk about hope disappointed. That's the cannon of come and take it. All this legend of come and take it. Remember, it's, it's, uh, it's the army in, in Mexico that was going to come and recapture this cannon that they had loaned to us, that they'd given to us, and they wanted it back now. And the prideful Texans made a flag that said, come and take it. And I get in there, and I'm like, yeah, let me see this cannon. And this cannon, I have guns that are bigger than this cannon. <laughs> this cannon, am I right, Smiths? It's like two feet long, maybe. It's like this big. And as the sign, come and take it, is bigger than the cannon itself. So I'm like, you can just have it. Like, what's the big deal? It was hope disappointed. I had all this hope of this amazing cannon only to be let down. That's worldly hope is kind of fingers crossed. Hope this works out. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Maybe this will disappoint me, but I hope it doesn't. And ultimately, it's left to chance. It's left to guesswork whether it will or it won't. 
The problem with worldly hope is at best, it is just optimism. But optimism is naive. It's expectant of something good, but is ultimately uncertain because of a lack of final knowledge. There is a piece about optimism that's missing, and that is the final knowledge of whether this will be as it promised to be or not. And that is worldly hope. Biblical hope is not like worldly hope. Biblical hope, as we see it in Scripture, is not rooted in a scenario or a situation, but rather it's rooted in a Savior. It's not rooted in guesswork. It's rooted in a guarantee. It's not rooted in a probability or a possibility. It's rooted in a promise that is absolutely certain. It is rooted in a person named Jesus Christ, a God who has not given us a optimistic hope on the future, but has given us a certainty of what is to come, but just simply is not yet. This is biblical hope. It is ultimately rooted in the character of the person who gives the promise. It is rooted in the character of God. One theologian wrote that biblical hope is our confidence in God whose goodness and mercy are to be relied upon and whose promises cannot fail. The reason you can trust God is because who God is. The reason God can be a promise maker is because God is ultimately a promise keeper. It is in keeping with his character that you can trust in him and have firm hope. James kind of gives us this look. If you remember in James chapter one, it's his whole theology of, of trials and suffering. And there's this part in chapter one where he talks about when you're in the midst of suffering, you're going to be tempted to second guess God, that God has somehow dealt you this harsh gift that is ultimately not fair and is rooted not in his character. It's just rooted in, it's rooted in sadness. It's rooted in evil. And you're going to be tempted to believe that about God. But then James reminds us why that is not who God is. When he says in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. You know what the context of the word gift is in chapter one? It's suffering. You go, well, that's a horrible gift. What kind of gift is that? Well, it actually can be a good gift, depending on who's giving it. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. You know what that phrase is, the Father of lights? In your Bible, can you think back to Genesis chapter one and two? What are the lights? They're the stars, right? Then you have the greater light, the sun, the lesser light, the moon, you're simply reflecting the sun, but it's the stars that are fixed in the heavens. The stars are so certain that for millennia, human beings have used them as navigational points. That when you're lost at the sea and you don't have a compass, you can look up, you can see Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, you can see the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper, and you can see the North Star, and you can, you can grab your bearings based upon these stars that are fixed in the sky and have not moved in millennia. 
And James compares God's giving to us these gifts as the father of lights. The one who made those lights is representative of those lights in that with him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so Paul reminds us when he wrote to Titus, that God cannot lie. The reason God can give us good gifts, even if they might be wrapped in harsh packages, is because he himself is good. He only gives out of what he is. And so therefore, biblical hope becomes something altogether different. True biblical hope keeps your heart and your mind alive to what God will do based upon who God is. Now, in the Bible, there's lots of words for hope, especially in the Old Testament. There are lots of words for hope. But one of the main words that's used over and over in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word kavah. Kavah, which means to wait. Say that with me, kavah. Kavah. That's fun to say. Francisco, I like to say that word. Kavah. Kavah means to wait. It can also be translated hope. The word kav, the root of that word kav is a rope. It's a cord. And when you pull on a cord, it creates a kavah, a tension. It's what the word hope means in the Old Testament. It's a state of tension, a state of anticipation while you wait for something to come about. To kavah means to wait. It means to hope, but there's a tension because it's not here yet. And you see this in several places. Isaiah 5.2, you can see this when it says, he dug and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. Talking about a vineyard here, a garden, and he built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That word looked is the word kavah. He waited. He, he planted this vineyard. He did everything that was to get it ready. But the only thing that's left to do is wait. Waiting on these grapes to grow. These grapes to come about in harvest. To kavah means to wait. In Micah chapter 5 verse 7. Again, you see another illustration of a farmer here. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like a dew from the Lord that showers the grass, which delay not for a man nor kavah for the children of man. It's speaking to human beings, these farmers that are waiting on the dew to water the land so that we can have fresh um, produce, that we can have uh, in an agricultural society, we can have a harvest that will yield. It kavah means to wait. Hoping and waiting in the scriptures are inextricably linked. It's always referring to this tension again of anticipation for something different or something better to come about than what currently is. But ultimately, when you read the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures in your Old Testament, what Israel was kavahing for the most wasn't rain and wasn't grapes, but it was the fulfillment of a promise that God had made concerning a king and a kingdom that was still to come. In Isaiah's day, the Assyrians were breathing down 
their neck. We, we saw this in Jonah in our last series. Those same Assyrians in that same day, they were threatening Israel. And even though Jonah was used by God and his message to hold them off for a little while, eventually God would allow the Assyrians to come down and capture the northern kingdom of Israel. And when they did so, it brought a darkness into the land. I want you to do me a favor. Grab your Bible there. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. This is the text that we read in our call to worship. It's very famous in this Advent Christmas season. But I want you to see exactly what Israel was kavahing for. What were they hoping for? It wasn't just a circumstance. It wasn't just a probability. It was a promise. I want you to hear this promise. Imagine being Israel. The Assyrians have now come in. They have entered through the north, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's northern Galilee. That's in northern Israel. The Assyrians were just north of that. They came in through the north, through the Galilee region, and they took Israel captive. There was a period of darkness in that land. Due to their slavery, there is a period of anguish in that land due to their oppression. And these people come in and in this day, in Israel's day, now that they are captive, there was not optimism with Israel. There was, there was not, there was not a probability or a wishing of things that would come. In the midst of their oppression, however, there was hope. There was hope because God made his people a promise that he himself would send a deliverer. I want you to look at this with me. Start in verse 1 of chapter 9. Just feel what they were waiting for. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former days, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. That's where the Assyrians came in, and that's why there was weeping and darkness and anguish in that part. And that's what they were experiencing. But Isaiah is going to project into the future what it is they're hoping for. In the latter time, however, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. He's reading in the midst of this bondage as if it's already happened. Because when you have biblical hope, even though it's not here yet, it's as if it already is because it's that certain. And Isaiah's reading as if it's already here. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. And he, he re restates this in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. All the darkness that was over northern Galilee, it is lit up right now. It is just straight light in this new day that has come. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And he, de he describes what this light will be like in the north for God's people. 
You have multiplied the nation. They're no longer a small group of oppressed people. Like we're talking body count has numbered. Genesis 1, the mandate is going forth. The the people of God are spread out. A huge nation from sea to shining sea all over the world. There is a new people that he sees in this day of light. And not only that, within all those people, you have increased its joy. You have increased its joy because they rejoice before you. And he gives two metaphors here for the kind of joy that God's people will have when this light bursts forth. One, as those with joy at the harvest. Think about all those who have planted and watered, who've tilled the land who have labored so hard that a crop might grow and all they can do now is wait and the harvest has come. That's the kind of joy these people have. And not only that, it's also like those who are glad when they divide the spoils. That is wartime language right here. A long battle of bloodshed and struggle and tumult and it is now finished And they are victorious and they have plundered the enemy's camp and they have divided the spoil among themselves. And it's that kind of gladness that they've received when this light comes. He says, for the yoke of his burden. You know what a yoke is, right? We're not talking eggs right here. We're talking wooden beam that goes across an ox to harness the energy to pull the plow that oppressive yoke that goes on an animal. He's describing that of Israel's condition in the middle of the darkness. They are, the imagery here is like that of slavery for God's people. And that yoke of this burden, the the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken it now. As on the day of Midian, Midian, think the story of Gideon and the 300 that took on the thousands and God used this small little force to defeat their enemies and the joy that came in that victory with Gideon. And now here it is with God's people in this day of light for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment that has been rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Deliverance has come. God has lifted the darkness and his light has shone. And now you wonder, how did this happen? If you're Israel in the midst of this waiting and hoping and longing, how has it come? And it's the weirdest of answers. In verse 6, For to us, a child is born and a son is given. It's the birth of a child that will initiate the light that will shine forth on a people that once walked in darkness. When you see this child's birth, you can know that your hope has now initiated its fulfillment. For a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He will carry a rule and a kingdom like you've never experienced before. And notice his name shall be called. He gets these these four descriptions here. Wonderful counselor. It's a great name. You know, we're not necessarily talking about a therapist right here. 
It's not what this word counselor. Think more in terms of a political office of those who hold the position of counselor. One who is, walks in wisdom with strategic battle plans. This child that will be born, who will bring about a rule and a kingdom, will carry a wisdom for the ages, a strategic plan for how he will go bringing about the salvation of God's people. But it's not just any man. He's called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Get your mind around that for this child. It's the idea that this child will be the embodiment, the full embodiment of Israel's God, of Yahweh himself. That's who this child will be, and he will be the Prince of Shalom. We're going to look at that next week, the peace of God. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This, this rule and this reign and this shalom will be eternal. And on the throne of David, the, the Davidic promise, remember they were promised in, in Samuel that one day, one day, a king would come through David's line of kings who would rule forever. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, this king will reign to establish it and to uphold it with perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Every wrong will be made right under the rule of this king. From this time forth, forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Israel in the midst of their darkness, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering and enslavement, they didn't have optimism based on wishful probabilities that things would change. They had a hope that was assured by God and rooted in God, that their deliverance and the hope of all hopes was in him and nothing lesser. A day is coming when darkness will be lifted and God's light will shine upon his people. Even one chapter earlier, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, listen to this. Isaiah confessed, in light of all these promises, I will wait for the Lord. I will hope for him who is currently hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Meaning we, we can't see what, who he is and what he's doing right now, but we know who he is. And so therefore I will kavah in him. Is Isaiah's hope in the meantime, in the waiting, isn't going to be rooted on some human system that's fallible. His hope, no matter how long he has to wait, is rooted in the God who is and cannot change, who is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And because God is not a liar, eventually that hope that Israel longed for, that Isaiah wrote of, will come about. You know where you see this? Flip to your right, get to your New Testament, just want you to see Isaiah 9 fulfilled. Matthew chapter 4. 700 years later. That's a long time to wait, is it not? I don't like waiting 24 days to Christmas right now, let alone 700 years for any particular promise to come fulfilled. That's how long they had to wait. But 700 years later, listen and see if this doesn't sound familiar. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. 
When Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And notice where the territory is. The territory of what? Zebulun and Naphtali. You heard that one before? It's Isaiah 9. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And there it is. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He quotes Isaiah 9. And from that time forward, Jesus began to preach saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven, oh, it's at hand. Do you see what Matthew is doing right here? Matthew is going to great lengths here to prove to God's people that God is not just a promise maker, he's a promise keeper. Therefore, his people's hope doesn't have to be in vain like the world's hope is with fingers crossed, but it can be assured. By the way, just sermon within a sermon. Church, quit crossing your fingers. Quit talking about good luck. That's not what our hope is rooted in. Our hope is not a maybe. Hey, keep your fingers crossed. Hope it works out for you. That's not biblical hope. We believe in a God of providence. We believe in a God of sovereignty. We believe in a God of promise. And he will not drop the ball on you. You don't have to cross your fingers at anything in this life. You can trust in the sovereign will of God that he is working all things out in your life to his glory and your good. Amen? You can hold to that. That is biblical hope. But there is a waiting. And you're going to have to do some waiting. And I'm going to have to do some waiting. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us, hope deferred is what makes a heart grow sick. But a desire fulfilled, oh, that's a tree of life. For 700 years, Israel's heart was sick. But eventually, their unwavering hope became for them a tree of life in Jesus who came to deliver them from an even greater enemy than Assyria. And that is that of sin and Satan and death. In the New Testament, on the other side of the cross, the early followers of Jesus, they had the same continued hope, but even more apparent. They believed that Jesus's life Death and resurrection was God's response to our slavery and oppression due to sin and death. The empty tomb is what opened the door of hope for God's people in their deliverance. Listen to this from 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to what? Not just hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope because our hope is not dead. Our hope has raised from a tomb. His name is Jesus Christ. He's our hope. Today, we still have this hope as we stand in this tension. As we've seen some of what Isaiah promised has already been fulfilled in Jesus' first advent. 
through his birth in Bethlehem, his ministry in the Galilee, and his conquering of sin, Satan, and death through his death and resurrection for us and our sin. That's been fulfilled, but there are parts of Isaiah's promise that we are still waiting for. There is still a second advent where Jesus will come again, and we're waiting for him to come overthrow all systems of injustice and bring about the fullness of his kingdom forevermore, where we will dwell with him for all eternity, not by faith, but by sight and the fullness of joy. And even though that day is not here yet, like Israel of old, we kavah, we wait in hope of the assurance that that day will come. It will not disappoint us. Listen to Paul's words as he describes our current condition right now in Romans 8, verses 18 and following. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age, this present time, are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is still to be revealed for us that we're waiting for right now. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, this day that is yet to come. For the creation was subjected to futility. What does that sound like? That's Genesis 3, right here, where the creation was subjected to a futility that it was not originally created for, but it was subjected to it. Not willingly, they didn't want it, but it got it. But because of him who subjected it, He subjected it in hope. When God brought down the curse on sin, it wasn't detached from hope. Because right after the curse was a promise, wasn't there? That one day God would send through the seed of woman, one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. There was always hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That day is coming, church. That is not a maybe. That is not fingers crossed. That is not good luck. That is a promise of certainty of the day when all humanity and creation will be rescued from sin and death once and for all. Biblical hope for us is not optimism based on odds, but rather a choice to wait on God for a future reality. We do this by looking back at the faithfulness and the character of God in order to fuel us with anticipation of what he is still to do in the days ahead. And that is exactly what the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 9, verse 28, when he says, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. Can I just give you three quick exhortations as we head not only into the next few weeks here, but to the rest of the life, how much ever breath we have left, three exhortations. Number one, church, I want to exhort us, spend some time, maybe tonight, maybe this week, doing some introspection and begin identifying areas of misplaced hope in your life. What lesser saviors do you find yourself looking to for deliverance right now? 
Maybe for some, it's shopping right now. Maybe for some, it's substances, alcohol, drugs. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's financial success. Maybe for some, your hope is in your sexual identity more than anything else. Maybe your hope is rooted in your social media connections, your promotions, whatever it may be. What are those worldly hopes that you are trying to rely upon for your ultimate hope right now? Much like we saw in Jonah, we need to name them. We, so we need to name them so we can repent from them, to own up to the fact that they cannot deliver us. What a great opportunity to do some introspection in this Advent season, to be brutally honest about what it is that really is seeking to steal our hope right now. I've already confessed to you one of the areas, especially in this season, that I struggle with is the area of comfort. It's putting my trust in finding paths of least resistance and nostalgia. I, I find myself struggling because I want to canonize seasons of my past, desperately seeking ways to recreate what once was because I believe that somehow that will deliver me and that will be my ultimate joy will be found in those experiences I've experienced in the past. But those are false saviors. They're mirages. We saw that in Haggai. What are yours? What are the areas right now where you are rooting yourself in misplaced hope? Identify those. Secondly, knowing that, guard your true hope. Especially, can I tell you, in these next 25 days. Specifically through God's word. These next 25 days, they are going to distract you and me like no other season there is. They are going to disorient you and me like no other season there is. And like the seed on the path, the enemy is looking to pluck this truth from you and pluck this truth from me to allow our hope to fall on lesser things. But it is only through the scriptures that the spirit reveals the God of hope and can lift the fog of disorientation in this season that we are so prone to experience. Let the promises of God in his word wash over you. Bathe in God's word, especially these next 25 days that are competing for your hope right now. Let his word instruct you of where your hope is found so that you can endure in a season of suffering and darkness. This season may not be any less busy. It may not be any less storm-tossed for you. But there is an anchor of hope that promises deliverance in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, I'd simply say, be encouraged. Because this kind of hope that is rooted in the scriptures that we see in Jesus Christ, it will not disappoint you. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and we have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access, and we have, by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces what? Hope. And hope does, this kind of hope, does not put us to shame. You know what that literally means? It does not disappoint you. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What he has started, he will finish. Put your hope in him. Even in suffering, there is a hope that will not fail you. It will carry you all the way to the end. When we get to that day, when we stand before Jesus Christ, when he returns in his second advent, you need to know when you've put your hope in him, there will be no disappointment in that day. There will be no regrets when you stand in the, in the face of the one whom you have put your trust in. There is coming a day when all that is wrong will be made right. Be washed by that church. Look ahead to that day for your hope. And know this, ultimately what we hope for shapes who we live for. What you hope for shapes who you will spend the rest of your days on this earth living for. Jesus came so that we would live for him and the assured promises that he has given us and not for lesser things. This Christmas be filled with the biblical hope of the one who has come for you. Amen? This is what our hope's in. I hope that's good news to you. And we want, to, we want to rehearse this good news every week as we do as a church. One of the ways that we rehearse this good news, that we remind ourselves of where our hope is from, is we do this in communion together, taking and observing the Lord's Supper together. If you are a member who's helping with, with communion, could you go ahead and grab the elements and head your stations here? And, but what a great opportunity for us right now to rehearse this gospel of hope to remind ourselves of the one who has come for us so that we can trust that he will come again. Y'all, I don't know about you. We need some good news right now. There's a lot of darkness still in our world. We may not be in Zebulun and Naphtali, but we're in Dallas and it feels pretty dark on certain days. And we need to be reminded of the hope that will not disappoint us, the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And what we do as a church, if you're not familiar with this, we observe a sacred and a symbolic meal that we take together. It's a portion of a larger meal that was celebrated by Jews for centuries following the Exodus and the Passover meal. And in that meal, Jesus took two of those elements among many and he put them up before his disciples to remind them of what that meal was ultimately pointing towards. It was never pointing towards a lamb in Egypt Ultimately, it was pointing towards the Lamb of God who's come to take away our sin. Jesus held up the bread and he reminded his disciples, he showed them and he reminds us that that bread was his body broken for us. We take the bread in remembrance of him. It's a reminder that due to our sin and due to the affliction that comes with sin, we were in need of a substitute who would come and suffer for us. But then Jesus took the cup and he held up the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant that's been poured out for you, for the forgiveness of your sins and drink this in remembrance of me, Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 11. This is a remembrance 
that will always allow us to rehearse that our lives are not about us, they're about him. That our joy is not rooted in our works, they're rooted in his works. Our salvation is not in our own merits, it's in the merit that has been given to us by grace through Jesus Christ. And every time we take this meal, we herald the Lord's death. We remember the first advent that came for us, but it's also a remembrance of the advent that is still to come. When Jesus told his disciples he will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until he is in the kingdom with his disciples. There's a day coming when we won't have to take this meal that we're about to take in shadow, symbolic form. We will take it face to face in substance at the second advent of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that, my friends, is our hope. So I'm going to pray for us as the ushers head down the aisles here. They will dismiss row by row. And then as they dismiss your row, just come forward to one of the stations that they point you to. You take that bread, dip it in the juice and be reminded of Christ's body and his blood for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we are not a people without hope. And even though we suffer like anybody else in this fallen world suffers, there is a different kind of hope for us, not a worldly hope that is rooted in a possibility, but a biblical hope that is rooted in promise, a guarantee. And Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus for us to give us salvation through his broken body, his shed blood in which we remember in this meal. And we are filled with gratitude and we say thank you, but we also know that there is a day coming when there will be a second advent when all of our hopes, all of our longings will be fulfilled in Jesus. So God, would you anchor us in that hope as Hebrews talks about? Would you help us to live in light of that hope? So as Peter said in 1 Peter, that when anybody asks us for an account for the reason of the hope that we have, we'll have the right answer. But it's in Jesus Christ and not in anything lesser. Fuel us with that, God, for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.